And in discussing John, Jesus is going to make some rather direct points of application for the rest of us. And I've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're just going to get right at it. We're going to see in verses 7 through 9, there's a series of three questions that Jesus utilizes in order for the purpose of bringing um, specific perspective and insight on the ministry of John the Baptist. Notice how he does this. Look at verse 7, Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. He said, "Now Now as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Here we see that John's disciples, those whom uh, had been sent to Jesus in our preceding verses that we looked at last week, um, and they went on John's behest asking for clarification uh, regarding Jesus. Was he indeed the promised one looking for just confirmation what he already knew to be true? We see here in verse 7 that these very disciples are now being sent away In other words, back to John. And as Jesus sends these men away, we discover um, that their discussion uh, that Jesus was having with these disciples of John were being overheard by the crowds to whom Jesus has been ministering to there in that Galilean region. And here we see that Jesus begins to question the crowds about John and his ministry in particular. So again, he asks them here at the end of verse 7... What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Now, obviously we remember, and this brings back to our remembrance, that John's ministry was a wilderness ministry. He went into the wilderness and he began his ministry there. We saw that when we were back in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it seems clear here in chapter 11 now that many of those, here in chapter 11, verse 7, that many of those now following Jesus around as he's continuing his ministry were familiar with John's ministry. As a matter of fact, he says, what did you? So again, he's making it, he's directing it to this crowd. Jesus' assumption is that many within this crowd went into the wilderness to see John. What did you go out to see and so then the question that he asked which is has a very implied answer he says a reed shaken by the wind is this what you went out to see now this statement this statement of a reed shaken by the wind could very simply mean um, in, in the most simplest terms did you go out to the Jordan to see the the the, the, the reed grass that was very common in that area around the Jordan waters uh, did you go out to make the obvious observation that uh, there's reed grass there and when the wind blows past it, they shake in the wind? And, and perhaps is that what you went out when you went out to see John? Well, I think the obvious answer, <clears throat> if that's what's intended by Jesus, would be no. They, weren't, they didn't go out into the wilderness just to see reed grass blowing there by the Jordan River when the wind pa- crossed past it. Now, if... If we were to take this in a little bit perhaps more of a metaphorical sense, um, it would be referring perhaps to the type of preacher or teacher, a reed, um, who's shaken by the wind, the wind there meaning kind of like cultural winds that shake preachers and cause them to say what's necessary in the moment. 
Is that what you thought you were going to go see when you saw John the Baptist, like so many other perhaps teachers or preachers? As the cultural winds blow by, their reed quivers and they shake and they say the things they want to hear and they have their ears tickled by said teachers and preachers. Well, either way, I mean, clearly the implied answer from Jesus would be no because that's not the way John the Baptist was preaching and teaching. He wasn't too concerned about the cultural winds and what they might, the prevailing wind might be of that day. He was preaching exactly what God sent him out there to do. So the first question that uh, Jesus proposes to them, he's getting them focused on why did you go out there then? Clearly it wasn't just to see uh, the grass or, or perhaps a, a teacher that you thought might be shaken by the cultural changes of wind. No, that's not why you did it. So he moves on and he asks the next question we see here in verse 8. But what did you go out to see? So again, the implied answer is no. His second one is this. A man dressed in soft clothing, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. So again, Jesus' second question as to why so many Jewish people went out into the wilderness to see John was just as improbable and laughable as the first. For the obvious reason that men, he says, dressed in soft clothing are not going to be found where? They're not going to be found out in the wilderness. They're going to be found in king's palaces. And we know from Matthew 3, verse 4, that John had a garment of camel's hair, not the softest of clothing, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was wild locust, was locust and wild honey. So clearly Jesus knew that that, again, wasn't the reason why they went out to see John. So in verse 9 of Matthew 11, he says again, but what did you go out to see? And now this is where Jesus is driving his nail home. He's, he's leading them to the obvious conclusion. This is what it was. Jesus, from his perspective, is saying, this is what you went out to see. You went out to see a prophet. Did you, what did you go out to see, a prophet? And he says, yes. And I tell you, one who is more than a prophet. Here Jesus gets to his point that he was wanting to make about John the Baptist. The reason that so many in Israel went out into the wilderness to see and hear from John is that John was a prophet. And we saw, again, back in chapter 3, that John had a very large following. His ministry wasn't just some small little thing that was happening. It says in chapter 3, verse 5, then Jerusalem, it's a very large statement, Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. So we know that John had a very significant, sizable ministry. And Jesus is saying the reason why so many of you, many who were in that crowd that had been following Jesus, went out to see John was for the express purpose that he was a prophet. And not just any prophet, uh, but one who was, he said, even more than a prophet. One that was more than a prophet. We see, um, again, from Matthew chapter 3, the way that he's more than a prophet was that it was said of this man, John, that he would be the forerunner of Christ, according to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, John. This is what Jesus is saying. This is who John is. He's the one that was referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight so in this way John as Jesus said was a prophet but one who is more than a prophet he was also the forerunner of the Messiah he has the historical distinction of being the herald 
of the coming age of salvation, specifically that would be the coming age of salvation in the name of Messiah, in the name of Jesus. We see when we get to the early preaching with Peter in Acts 4.12, he says, and there is what? Salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So we know that John the Baptist, he was a prophet, but more than a prophet, and that he was the herald to the coming age of salvation, specifically salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus tells this crowd that the reason they went out in the wilderness by droves was predicated on the fact that they had been hoping and longing for this day of God's arrival where he would send his unique messenger to Israel who in accord with Isaiah 40 verse 3 and Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 would be the one who would clear the way before the coming of the Lord. This is why. All of Israel went out to see John the Baptist. And then Jesus affirms this by quoting Malachi 3.1. He said, it, well, he quotes Malachi 3.1 in Matthew 11.10. I've got Malachi 3.1, but that should say Matthew 11.10 right here. That should say Matthew 11.10. Sorry. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus here is speaking of John's role as being the one who has been selected by God to go and prepare the way before him. Matthew quotes Jesus here, who quotes Malachi as saying of John that he is that messenger, being, set to, being sent ahead of Jesus, to prepare Jesus' way before Christ. John the Baptist was indeed a special man. He was a prophet, but more than a prophet, much more than that. And as such, God had spoken regarding the coming of Messiah as that which was and had been fulfilled. Jesus is saying this about John. This has been fulfilled. Which, um, he confirms... Uh, unequivocally when we get to verse 11 Jesus unequivocally demonstrates just the uniqueness of John notice what he says here then as he continues he says to this crowd truly I say to you among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist he's a prophet but more than a prophet he's the one that's prepared the way of the Lord for the coming of salvation and salvific history specifically in the name of messiah in the name of jesus christ he made his way straight there's not been born any one of women arisen greater than john the baptist yet notice the very end here yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he doesn't that seem rather paradoxical well let me explain that to you jesus says that of all people born so far, John the Baptist is the greatest of all human beings so far. And we have to make certain that we couch this correctly. All human beings are made in the image and likeness of God and carry equal value and worth as being creations made in the image of likeness of God, right? We agree with that, right? So what is it that makes John greater or the greatest? It would be something that wouldn't be connected to his just being human, after all, John was 
born with a sin nature like everyone else, save the Lord Jesus Christ. John was in need of a savior like the rest of us. So what it seems to be making a point to is that John's specific role in God's plan of human redemptive history, John's role, John played the greatest role of anyone else who's ever been born among women, greater than Noah, greater than Abraham, Moses, David, all the prophets. Again, which says something very specific about the importance of his unique role, again, in the redemptive eschatologic plan of God, and we could also add, and of John's faithfulness in fulfilling that role, right? But the role that God gave him as the forerunner to Messiah, Jesus says, makes him the greatest person born of women. He carried the greatest role, the greatest responsibility of anybody thus far. And again, what makes this so interesting is that then Jesus goes on to say something about the least in the kingdom of heaven, right? I mean, John the Baptist, let's think about John again, as great as he was. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets preceding the first advent of Messiah. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets preceding the first advent of Messiah and in particular his crucifixion. And that's an important distinction that we need to understand. Preceding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. John, like all other Old Testament saints, in that regard, belonged to the old era of saints who lived, again, prior to the consummation of the New Covenant, right? The consummation of the New Covenant being that which was inaugurated by Christ at his death on the cross. So John's prophecy ministry, along with all the other Old Testament prophets, preceded the coming of the New Covenant, in the death of Christ at the cross of Calvary. So he's a part of that old era of saints who lived under an old covenant, a Mosaic covenant. We see this brought together in Luke 22, 20. Jesus kind of making this connection with regard to the new covenant and his crucifixion. He says there, and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples there in the upper room, this cup which is poured out for you. And the cup that he was handing them was the chalice of of wine, and it's symbolic of what was just about to come, which was his blood being shed at the cross of Calvary. So this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus makes a very simple statement that's kind of an obvious statement that the new covenant was inaugurated through the pouring out, the shedding of his blood there on the cross at Calvary. John and all the other Old Testament saints were part of a different era, an old covenant era. And they were all looking forward to the coming of the one who would be the one who would do this work right here. And John was the greatest of all those who had come before him and that his particular role was in the making straight the way of this one who comes and establishes the new covenant in his blood at the cross of Calvary. That's how awesome John is. So, while John lived to see Jesus and played his role perfectly, he died uh, still living under that old covenant, still awaiting the official consummation of the rule of God's kingdom, the rule of Christ under that new covenant. 
that had already been inaugurated, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it was established specifically with the creation of the new covenant in his blood and the birth of his church. So the already aspect of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said, and he officially established that rule through his shed blood at the cross of Calvary, the establishment of that new covenant. And what Jesus says at the end of this verse in that regard is utterly astounding. It's utterly astounding. Look at verse 11 again. I say to you, among those born of women, there's not arisen anyone greater than John. His unique role in the redemptive plan of redemptive human history up until this point from Genesis all the way to Malachi to John, there had been no one greater than John in the role that God had given him. But notice, yet. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This tells us that our role as new covenant believers in Jesus and the role we are to be playing in human history with regard to God's redemptive plan for the salvation of his elect and of the ushering in of the last convert that will usher in the second advent of Jesus is far superior of a role in God's plans than even that of John the Baptist. You think we need to let that sink in? I think we need to let that sink in. And again, remember, John's being the greatest wasn't because of his superhuman character. John was born in need of a savior just like the rest of us. He was the greatest by comparison of roles relative to God's plan of redemption in human history. And as hard as this may seem to comprehend, but what Jesus is saying is that those, us converts, who are being born into the kingdom of God underneath the new covenant, the role that God has given us as covenant kids to be heralders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclaiming of the gospel to the saving of God's elect is a far greater role than that of what John played. Again, we need to let that sink in, church. Is that not astounding and seem almost utterly impossible? Do you, do you have you truly viewed yourself in light of this particular role that God has given you as a saint who has been given a commission, a commission of saving not only your neighbor but the nations until the last elect of God comes in and then the second advent and then the future coming of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That's how significant the church is on earth. And every individual that makes up that body of the church here on earth has that significant of a role from God's perspective. That's what Jesus said. Yet the one who's the least in the kingdom of heaven, underneath the new covenant, the rule of Christ following the crucifixion of Christ and the birth of the church is greater than John the Baptist. 
I think we oftentimes need to be reminded of this, of the importance of the work that we are to have with regard to gospel ministry. Amen? We need to remember who we are in relationship to God. Amen? He has called us with a very specific calling to be a very specific, peculiar kind of people for a very specific, peculiar kind of time as now. As then, so now. 2,000 years later hasn't changed. Same then, same now. It's your turn, church. It's our turn. It's, it's our day of sojourning. The Apostle Paul, he was a tent maker. So whatever it is you do to put bread on the table, whatever your tent making may be, do it to the glory of God. But that's not what defines you. That's not who you are. You're not going to die. Well, you, well, this is what happened. When people die, they say, oh, he was a great, he was the greatest of whatever it was your occupation was. And they always talk about the person's occupation. Listen, whenever you die, we want to get up and, at your funeral and say, this individual, this man, this woman was known for following Jesus Christ all the days of their life. Oh, they did such and such to put bread on the table. Yeah, but everybody, know, everybody here knows them because of what they did in service to the body of Christ in the, in the building of the kingdom of heaven. It's a greater role than that of even John the Baptist. Wow. And then Jesus lets us know, uh, with such important knowledge relative to our particular role under the new covenant, that doing such ministry has never been easy and has always attracted conflict. Notice verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. In those transitional days from John the Baptist, there in the wilderness ministry he had until now, Jesus says, the time of Jesus' Galilean ministry, one constant that has marked the preaching of the kingdom of heaven is that of violent men trying to quash the advancement of the gospel of Christ. It seems clear here that the kingdom of heaven has been and remains subject to the same violent opposition that it always has. And what, what we know when we kind of just skip through the pages of the New Testament epistles is that that violence, that opposition, violent men trying to quash it and take the kingdom of heaven by force never went away. We see this in Acts chapter 7. They went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And why did they stone Stephen? For his faithful proclamation of who Christ was relative to the entire Old Testament, the cross, and your need for him now. That's why they stoned Stephen. In Acts 14, 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and after winning over the crowds and stoning Paul, they were dragging him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So while we have the most significant part to play in God's plan of redemptive human history and the saving of his elect, we also have to come with the, to the grip, uh, grips with the fact that Satan will use violent people to prevent God's saving word from being proclaimed from the housetops. So if and when we are called to stand in the gap to proclaim the good news of Jesus, even at the cost of great loss, whatever that may be, we, church, we need to stand. Did John the Baptist stand? He stood 
And sometimes he stood a little bit loudly, and Herod Antipas didn't like it too much, and so he put him in, in prison, right? And so we look, we look uh, back in chapter 10. We were, we were reminded there that we don't have to purposefully go out and throw ourselves into the teeth of the wolves. Jesus is sending his disciples out as sheep amongst wolves. We don't have to go out and purposefully throw ourselves into the teeth of the wolves. Oh, and, and I've been talking to Cade Coffee over the last week almost daily, and I reminded him of that. You know, you don't need to go out and have some self-fulfilling prophecy of, hey, I gave my life for Jesus. You can give your life for Jesus while still alive, right? While living dead, seeking his purpose and his will. I said, we'd like to have you around. As a matter of fact, I told him to buy a ticket and to get home immediately. So he's supposed to call me today and let me know if he got that ticket. So a little of a side note over here, away from my preaching. Uh, we're praying that Cade would get back here as fast as possible. And with that being said, um, again, this is just a sidebar over here. Um, I'm looking for individuals willing to, A, either provide a, a resource for him for transportation when he gets here, and housing and shelter. So if any of those might fall in your wheelhouse, let me know. Okay, now, back over here to the sermon. Um, we're not called to go out and make ourselves purposefully martyrs, but when you get called to stand in the gap, you got to stand, right? You can't cave to pressure. What did Jesus say? If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven, but if you deny me before men, you stay silent, you're ashamed of the gospel, and that kind of becomes a perpetual reality in the life of one who's claiming to be a follower of Jesus, he just says, look, I'm going to deny you before my father. It's indication that your heart truly isn't mine. That's what Jesus was articulating in some of his hard teachings there back in Matthew chapter 10. Well, we know this in advance. We know that, the, um, that violent men will t try to take the kingdom of heaven by force, always have, always will. And so then from verses 13 and 14, Jesus makes a rather unique statement about John the Baptist. Notice what he says here in verses 13 and 14 back to Matthew chapter 11. He says, For all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, and he's kind of couching this statement as this is probably going to be a pretty difficult statement for you those to whom Jesus is speaking to in the crowd in this Galilean region, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, here in verse 13, Jesus said that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, meaning that all of the scriptures produced by Old Testament prophets and all of the scriptures produced by Moses, the law, all said something meaningful with regard to the coming of Messiah. We could say from Genesis to Malachi to John, the Baptist. All of those scriptures pointed to and moved human history toward the coming of Jesus Christ as the main collective overarching theme of God's history. That's what he's bringing it to is the coming of Christ and the saving of his elect through the preaching of that gospel. Now, sometimes these statements from Genesis to Malachi to John were more explicit, and other times they're 
maybe more implicit, and sometimes maybe it's even difficult to find the connection. But when we put it all together in the big picture of God's meta-narrative of the Old Testament scriptures, we always see that it's moving towards and culminating in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So to the degree that John's ministry was the revealing of the long-awaited Son of Man, which it was, John was also, as mentioned there in verse 14, as the forerunner to the coming of Jesus, was also one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, which we see in Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament makes mention of, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. He says there, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. Now this awesome and coming day of the Lord is referring to the day of the Lord, which is a day of great judgment, a day that the Lord's judgment will come at the second advent of Jesus. And so the Jewish nation were obviously anticipating that Jesus, the Messiah, when he showed up, would be performing some of this whenever he showed up. So when John's ministry was the, as the forerunner was revealing Jesus as this one, a lot of them were anticipating that this is what was going to be following, that there was going to be the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord's vengeance, to which Rome would not fare well and all the other nations around them, and Israel would be reestablished as a dominant world power and the place from which Messiah would rule with a rod of iron. And so John... Uh, while we know he is not the reincarnation of Elijah, he, as the forerunner, uh, is uh, likened unto the prophet Elijah, who John, like Elijah, speaks boldly, spoke boldly and powerfully, and he spoke truth boldly and powerfully with regard to God and the coming of his kingdom in the person of Messiah. And one of the ways that we know that John is, if you're willing to accept it, this individual, is even made notice whenever the angel of the Lord showed up to Zechariah, John's father. We see this in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Notice what was mentioned from said angel of the Lord to Zechariah regarding his son John. He says right here, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel of the Lord was telling Zechariah, this is what your son John is going to be doing. He's coming as the forerunner to Messiah in fulfillment of Isaiah 43, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, but he's also coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to do this work to prepare the nation of Israel, a people prepared for the Lord for their Messiah. So again, while John wasn't literally Elijah, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah to accomplish his role as the forerunner to Jesus Christ. So what that means most significantly to us is that John, having come as such in the spirit and power of Elijah in accordance with Malachi 4-5, and seeing that that work is finished, the only logical conclusion would be that we now living under that great new covenant of Jesus Christ are living under what's referred to as an in the last days. 
we're living in light of said coming day of the Lord. Now to us, 2,000 years removed from the cross, it's still yet a future day. We're still living in light of that coming. But John's ministry not, not only brought to pass the significance of the fact that uh, salvific history would be found exclusively now in the name of Jesus, no other name given among men by, by which you must be saved, but it also begins what we refer to as the last times in which we're looking for and longing for that day when God's wrath will show up. We see this in Peter's preaching over here in Acts chapter 2. Notice how he pulls these two concepts together. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, so here we are at the very birthing of the church, it shall be in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Here we see how the last days and the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, have their genesis at the same time. And what this understanding does for the saints of God, from the beginning of the church and its being birthed, is to remind them and us of such startling Christological implications with regard to the coming of that great and awesome day of Yahweh, that day of vengeance and wrath, which tells us we know that that day is still a future day. It's still awaiting, but we should be looking for it. And why that is important for us to know is that it keeps us, it should keep us from what? It should keep us from frittering our precious time away on things that just honestly really don't matter. When we connect that with the reality that the least in the kingdom of heaven has a greater role than, said, than, than did John the Baptist, we have created so many things and ways in which we can fritter time away mindlessly and we've created these little these little um these ideas you know this i'm going to kind of couch it with just some me time i just i just need some me time just gotta if you don't love yourself how can you love others time right and so we we have all kinds of things that we may do. Um, it's not that those things are bad, but proportionately, if we don't have those things proportionately scaled right in our lives, and we fritter so much of our time away doing some things that truly are, are of complete insignificance in the big scope of God's plan of redemptive history, then what are we doing? There is a future day of wrath coming, and there are people out there that need to know the Lord. What are we doing? Have we created an understanding of church life and the gospel that's so convenient and comfortable that we just, we just show up on Sunday and we check that box? Did my religious thing... We've got to make sure that we're not a frog in the proverbial kettle. And Jesus in his teaching here kind of in some unique ways brings to light some very significant things that we 2,000 years later still need to be mindful of.
we have the most significant role ever to play in human history ever, greater than John the Baptist. There's a future day of wrath that's still coming. He inaugurated it at the birth of the church. That day is coming. If you think it's not and you fall asleep at the wheel, let me tell you, you may find out in the wrong way. And people out there, your neighbor to the nations, need the Lord. I'm convinced. Show me, tell me I'm wrong. I'm convinced that here in the great United States of America, the greatest mission field, the greatest mission field that we are needing to face is the nominal church. America is filled with individuals who go to church, have a tacit understanding of who Jesus is, but let me tell you, when push comes to shove, Jesus is not their greatest treasure. They would not sell everything they have to go buy the field for, to get that pearl of great price. They'd be glad to tack that pearl of great price kind of conveniently on, you know, like a little pouch on the side of the hip. Talk about Jesus. Stroke the pouch, the pearl. It's beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. We sing all kinds. I'm telling you, the greatest mission field that you're going to face here in America isn't the atheist. There's a few of them out there, okay? But by comparison, the greatest mission field you're going to face are individuals who think they're Christian and they're not. I promise you that. And what makes that the, the most difficult mission field to witness to is because they already think they are. And everything you say to them relative to well, hey, do you believe in Jesus? I believe. You love the Lord? I love the Lord. So how, how do you navigate and negotiate around individuals who are going to affirm everything you say unless you don't start getting a little bit more into the weeds? And you know what those weeds are? Well, go to Matthew chapter 10. Start asking some of the difficult questions. Is Jesus truly your Lord? You know, Jesus says radical things like, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? Just some of the obvious. I mean, is that not just a very obvious, low-lying fruit question? You see somebody who's not living as a Christian. Why would you call yourself a Christian and say Jesus is your Lord when you live like that? You, you don't live like that. I go to church on Sunday. Isn't that what it's about, churchianity? No, it's not. Jesus is clearly articulating in the, in the Gospel of Matthew that following after him is not going to be easy. He did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword, and his Gospel message and ministry will divide people from one another. It will. And we can't run from that and pretend otherwise and get back in the pot that's been boiling for some long time now. The church in America, I'm telling you, your greatest mission field are probably your family and your friends who also claim to know Jesus, but you've been watching their lives for a very long time. And let me tell you, people do what they love. And you tell me, who do they love? Or better yet, who do you love? What do your actions truly say? And then Jesus, verse 15 He's like, hey, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. <laughs> he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And let me tell you, not everybody has ears to hear this. Those who have ears to hear ought to be thinking, I'll be a son of a gun. That's true. 
that's who we are in relationship to God. Wow. I, I, it's astounding that our role is even greater than John the Baptist. I never thought of it that way. That ought to change the way I live when I leave this place today and forever. Understanding that as the body of Christ, and listen, you may think to yourself, well, I'm just a little toe in that body. Listen, that little toe, you better be the best little toe you've ever been. Because God uses a body collectively to do great and mighty things for his purposes. Amen? Get connected to a local church. Stop dating churches. Get connected to a local church. Serve within your local church. Love the people within your local church. Build one another up in love, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. And then we go out there together, and what do we do? We're heralds. We're ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest commission ever given amongst men. You're living it today. The wrath is coming. If you got ears to hear, let them hear. And then remember what Jesus said a few weeks back in Matthew 10, 39, some of his hard sayings. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Listen, friends. Let's go lose our life in Jesus this coming week. Amen? Let's do it.